Hey, I'm Zach. I'm the lead pastor here at Restore. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast today. I hope that this message encourages you. I hope that it inspires you. And I hope that it causes you to dive deeper into God's word. I also hope that you have some community around you that you can talk through some of these things with. Now, I want to remind you that we are in the middle of our year in the story, which is really this deep dive into God's great story and our place in it. If you'd like more information about that or more information about our community here at Restore, you can get that on our website at restoreaustin.org. We'd really love to see you soon. Thanks for listening. A lot of you guys have heard me uh, talk about how I was kicked out of church when I was 13, or at least youth group to be more specific. Um, and, uh, and I talk about that story a lot. And the reason I talk about it a lot is because many of you in this room and, and so many people I encounter share a similar story. And so it just comes up a lot, honestly. Um, but I also think about it a lot this time of year. I think about it a lot this time of year because kind of the, the last straw that led to my expulsion came with an Easter story right around this time of year. I remember it like it was yesterday. We were sitting in a circle in the youth room, and our youth pastor was reading through the story of Jesus on the cross. And he, he was walking through the book of Matthew, and he talks about the soldiers mocking Jesus, right? How they, how they spat on him and how they uh, put the crown of thorns on his head, how they beat him and stripped off his clothes and, and rolled dice to get to see who took his clothes home. He talked about how Jesus was so beaten down from the, the torture that he endured that the soldiers actually had to enlist another man to carry his cross up the mountain before he was crucified. He talked about how his best friends had abandoned him, how, how the crowd cursed at him, how the soldiers nailed him to the cross. And then he read Matthew 27, verses 45 and 46. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemo sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And after this verse was read, a friend of mine pipes up and says, youth pastor, did, did God really turn his back on Jesus on the cross? And our youth pastor replied, yeah, he did. You see, on the cross, Jesus was carrying the sin of the world on his shoulders. And because God is holy, he cannot be around sin. And because he's holy and because he can't be around sin, he turned his back on Jesus in that moment. I just remember being like appalled and disgusted by that. I had had my doubts about the whole God thing up until this moment, but it felt like that point just really sealed it. And without raising my hand, I said something like, are you kidding me? This God that you claim to be so gracious and so full of love and so caring turns his back on his son at the very worst moment in his life? He's not even a good dad. How could he be a good God? And the youth pastor said something like, that's enough, and told me to go in the hallway. <laughs> so I go sit in my usual spot in the hallway. I had a designated area back there. <laughs> and I go and I sit down, and I wait, and I wait. And after they finish, the youth pastor comes out, and he says, I want you to wait until your parents get here, and I want to talk to all of y'all. And he told me when they got there that I was no longer welcome at the youth group, and that I was 
disrupting the Bible study and asking questions and making comments that were causing other kids to doubt their faith. Um, but that was fine with me, you know? I didn't really understand how any of them could believe in a God that, was turned, that would turn his back on his perfect son in his greatest time of need, hardest moment of his life. I also remember thinking that if that God did exist, if he couldn't be around Jesus because of the sin that was on him, he definitely couldn't be around me, right? Jesus like lived this perfect life. He took the sins of others on himself. I had my own sins and a lot of them. If he couldn't be around Jesus in that moment, there was no way he would ever want to be around me. And I carried this view of God with me for years. Even after I became a Christian when I was 17, it lingered in the back of my mind. This monster God whom Jesus pacified and whom Jesus kind of coaxes into tolerating me because I walked down an aisle or I prayed a prayer of salvation. Many of you have been in churches and heard Christians teach some version of this monster God, right? I always what pic- I pictured kind of what happened on the cross as this angry father waiting to beat his children every time they did something wrong. But Jesus, playing the role of this protective mother, stands in front of her children, shielding them from this big, mean, angry man, taking the burden on herself, taking the beating on himself, protecting the kids. That was this picture of of the monster God and the Jesus who saved me from him. Like he pacified him, like he barely makes me tolerable to be in his presence. I remember hearing that he's always at the right hand of God, pleading on our behalf, and I've come to understand that that means that he is there and one with God as the Trinity is one, and and praying together and believing in me and and, and loving me and showing mercy to me and, and exhorting me to live the life that he's called me to. But for a long time, I thought that he was up there next to God saying, please don't hit him with a lightning bolt. I know he did it again. I know that he, he just can't learn, but, but I, I, I covered him. He's one of mine. And like talking God off the ledge every time. And and even after I got into ministry, even after I started working at churches, even after I started teaching people about this God that I did believe to be so loving and gracious, this idea of this monster God was crouched and hidden in the back of my mind, this God that was just perpetually angry at me. But what if I told you that the God that we've so often portrayed to us as this monster God is nowhere to be found in the story of the Bible? Because I am convinced that this monster God, like monsters under our bed, is a figment of our imagination. And I am convinced that much of our understanding about what happened on the cross is is fundamentally flawed. This morning, we're in week two of the series we started last week, and that ends next week on Easter Sunday. It's called In My Place. And In My Place is is a look at something that the Bible calls and that Christians have called for thousands of years, atonement. And atonement is God's plan to rid the world of evil and sin and their effects. In the first week of this series, we talked about how when someone chooses to give in to the influence of evil and they, they hurt themselves or they hurt someone else, the Bible calls that sin. We've all experienced this. 
The influence of evil that we see all around us, it's not just affecting everyone else, it's affecting us too, right? And each and every one of us has, has given into that, and we've hurt ourselves or we've hurt someone else. Each and every one of us have been hurt by someone else, not just once or twice. This is something that we struggle with day after day, week after week, year after year. And Scripture talks about that God hates sin. And again, in my monster God category, I thought this was because he was this moral monster that was just perpetually angry at us. But I've come to understand that it's not because he's an angry monster that flies off the handle every time we do something wrong. He hates sin because he hates seeing his kids get hurt. He hates seeing his kids hurt other people. He hates seeing the perfect, peaceful world that he created disrupted by pain and sin. Sin comes with two kinds of consequences, direct consequences and indirect consequences. The direct consequence of sin is a broken relationship. So if, if I came to you and you had something and I stole it from you, then the situation itself is broken, right? And to remedy that broken situation, I would need to repay you for what was stolen, return the item, reimburse you for what it was, whatever that looked like. But the second kind of consequence, the indirect consequence, is often much more painful, because even though the situation gets broken, a lot of times the situation can be remedied, but that second consequence is a broken relationship caused by the sin. If I steal from you, I can, I can give the thing back or I can reimburse you for it, but the trust that we had is broken. The relationship that we had is broken. And sin not only breaks our relationship with each other, it breaks our relationship with God. Because at its core, sin is the choice to trust something other than God, other than our creator, to meet our needs. It's the choice to rebel against his design for us, which was to live at peace and love with the world around us. It breaks the perfect world that he has created. God hates the broken relationships. He hates the broken situations that sin leaves in its wake. So God came up with this plan to rid the world of sin and evil without ridding the world of humanity. Because you see, that would be the easy way to do it. Like Matt just prayed. We were a lot of the ones that were giving in to the evil, that causing the sin, hurting ourselves, hurting someone else. The easiest way to get rid of all that would be to get rid of us. But because of his great love and his great mercy, he chose to enact a plan called atonement that would rid the world of evil and sin and their effects without ridding the world of his kids, his image bearers, the ones he loves. On a spiritual level, this means mending our broken situation and our broken relationships, both with each other and with God. Last week, when we opened up this series, we talked about it by looking at atonement in the Old Testament in something called the sacrificial system. The book of Leviticus outlines this system, and here's the key verse, Leviticus 17, 11. For the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. Notice God says, I have given it to you. The gift of atonement is a gift from me. And this is the foundational truth that all understanding of atonement must be built on. God provides the sacrifice. God provides the sacrifice. We break things, he fixes them. We sin, he sacrifices. We are in need and he provides. God provides the sacrifice. This truth is also echoed in the story of Abraham and Isaac that we looked at last Sunday. When Isaac asked his father Abraham where the sacrifice will come from as they journey up the mountain, Isaac doesn't know that, that God has actually called Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, or at least he thinks so. 
So he's walking up the mountain, and Isaac is like, Abraham, Dad, where's the sacrifice going to come from? And Abraham says God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering. God provides the sacrifice. For Abraham and Isaac, that day it wasn't a lamb. If you remember the story from last week, it was a sheep caught by its horns. The lamb came later when God put on flesh, came to earth as Jesus Christ. That's why John the Baptist, when he sees Jesus, he says, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's the lamb that we're going to be talking about this morning. So that lamb would eventually lay down its life on the cross, the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. But for us, as we gather together this morning and we open up scripture, the question is not how Jesus died. Most of us know that secular, religious, in church your whole life or not. Most of us have some understanding of what the cross was and what it was like. The question is not how he died. The question is why? Why? Is it because there is some monster God up in heaven so full of uncontrollable anger that he had to just exhaust it on something to be satisfied? I don't think so. I think that Jesus on the cross is not an innocent man dying to appease an angry deity. You see, that's the pagan concept of human sacrifice. It's forbidden by the Bible. It's detestable in the eyes of God. A proper understanding of Jesus on the cross must begin with a proper understanding of Jesus. You see, Jesus is God in the flesh, God with skin on. God didn't kill Jesus, y'all. God is Jesus. You understand what I'm saying? God didn't kill Jesus. God is Jesus. Pastor Brian Zahn says it like this. The cross is where God in Christ absorbs sin and recycles it into forgiveness. The cross is not what God inflicts upon Christ in order to forgive. The cross is what God endures in Christ as he forgives. He's God with skin on. He didn't kill Jesus. He is Jesus. Christians believe in what we call a Trinitarian God. You may have heard of this concept, the Trinity, one God, three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. That's what it's called, the Trinity. Once when Jesus at the temple in Jerusalem during this big religious festival, some of the religious leaders asked him if he was really the promised Savior, this this guy they called the Messiah, predicted by the prophets in the Old Testament. Are you really this guy? We've heard, but are you really him? And they said, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you did not believe. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my Father's hand. Excuse me, out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. Listen, I and the Father are one. I and the Father are one. Later, Jesus is teaching his 12 disciples, and they ask him a similar question about who he is. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him, and you have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father. That'll be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I have been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. They are one. 
How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father in me, living in me, who is doing his work. God the Son, God the Father are one. He goes on to say, I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. There it is. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. Did you see it? One God, three persons united together. I am convinced that a proper understanding of the Trinity will save us from an improper and unbiblical understanding of atonement on the cross. God didn't kill Jesus. God is Jesus. As John says it in his gospel account, using the Word as his nickname for Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. The Word that is God became flesh and made his dwelling among us. God with skin on. God in the flesh came and made his dwelling among us in the person of Jesus. This is what we mean when we say the foundational truth of atonement is that God provides the sacrifice. First animals, then himself. Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, in perfect union with the other persons of the Trinity, sacrificially laid his life down on the cross for us. With that as our foundation, with that understanding of the Trinity and who Jesus is, we are now better, better able to answer the question, why did Jesus die? What was the purpose and what happened when he did? To understand that, I think that we have to look back and we have to trace the thread of evil's influence all the way back to the opening pages of the Bible in the first chapters of Genesis. Many of you know the story, right? God creates the whole world. He calls everything in it very good. It's filled with, with beauty and majesty and perfect peace between all living things, including humanity, the ones that the Bible says are made in God's image. But not everything in God's very good world was right. In Genesis 3, we're introduced to a serpent. And we don't know much about the serpent, but we know that he is evil. He is kind of evil with skin on, evil incarnate, the physical representation of the spiritual reality of evil in our world. And the temptation that evil gives to Adam and Eve is to be in charge. It's power. The serpent tells them if they disobey God, they will then become like God and have the power to define good and evil for themselves. They get to be in charge. Evil offers humanity power. And it's vital for us to understand that this is very real power being offered to humanity in this moment. Evil is powerful. And the temptation like it has been for so many of us, is too much for Adam and Eve. And they give in to evil embodied, and they hand over evil's first foothold in our world. And when that happened, the intimate relationship between God and humanity is broken. You see, we demanded our own rules. We demanded to be our own rulers. And God hands us over to those demands. He says, you want to be in charge? Here you go. We get to be in charge. We get to define good and evil for ourselves, but there is something ruling alongside of us. Ephesians 2.2 2 calls it the prince of the power of the air. 
John 12, 31, the ruler of this world. 2 Corinthians 4, 4, the God of this age. And the Bible says that it, evil incarnate, has come to steal and kill and destroy. That it has been a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth. That it prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. This evil embodied is the same one that was crouching at Cain's door, if you remember that story, right? Pushing him to be jealous and to eventually murder his brother Abel. The same one that whispered into Pharaoh's ear to kill all of those Israelite children. Hey, this is, this is your country. These Israelites are multiplying kind of fast. Aren't you getting kind of worried? Like you're going to lose your power here, Pharaoh. What if we just, what if we just wiped them out? Like when they're babies, just start really young. You'll never have to lose your power if you do that. It's that same evil embodied, the same one that humanity has been giving into ever since. And like we said earlier, when we give in to the influence of evil by hurting ourselves or someone else, the Bible calls it sin, and sin has consequences. Broken situations and broken relationships. The Old Testament sacrificial system was used to mend the consequences of sin, to fix the broken situation, to fix the broken relationships. But Jesus, the ultimate sacrifice, listen, takes it a step further. Not only does he fix the brokenness caused by sin, through his death, he goes after the evil behind sin, the root cause, the thing that has been crouching at the door of Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel and all of us ever since. This helps us understand the why why Jesus came, and why Jesus died. Think about the life that we see recorded, the life of Jesus in the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Think about what he did during his ministry, his three years where he was going around on earth. Remember? He's reversing the effects of evil and sin, right? He's going after it. He's healing the sick. He's giving sight to the blind. He's feeding the hungry. He's setting the slaves free. He's making the marginalized feel seen and loved. He's taking the repressive, oppressive religious leaders to task. He's forgiving sins. He's going after evil and its effects. And you can see it because as he does so, as he navigates this world, as he goes after mending the broken relationships, mending the broken situations, Jesus is declaring that the kingdom of this world, the one that is still under the influence of evil, is no more. That there is a new kingdom, the kingdom of God, and a new king, Jesus Christ. He's going after the evil behind the sin. And if you've read these stories of Jesus' life and, and you remember him going after evil and its effects, you remember that evil is not going away quietly. There is story after story as Jesus navigates this world where the, the demon-possessed people are coming up to him, where, where demons are around him and he's, he's casting them out and he's, he's putting them into pigs. And I mean, it's like all of these crazy stories, like they're coming after him. You can see just as Jesus walks through this earth, it's like evil is converging on him. Do you remember when he goes to the desert, right? He does the 40 days and 40 nights. Satan's there, like the big daddy of all the demons. He's coming after him. Jesus is getting too close. He's declaring too intently that the new kingdom is here. He is crowning himself king, and so Satan gives him that same temptation he gives Adam and Eve. I got some power for you. Just, just trust in me, and I'll give it to you. You can rule this whole thing. This thing's mine. I don't know if you know that. This world's mine. I can just give it to you. Satan himself comes after Jesus. 
It's like evil is being drawn to him like a magnet. It's as if Jesus is inviting evil to come and do its worst. Accepts the invitation. The worst it has to offer begins to culminate on the night right before Jesus dies on the cross. He's betrayed by Judas. You remember this story? He's betrayed by Judas. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane. His disciples, they're supposed to be praying, but they're all asleep. And then this whole group of people come to start arresting Jesus. And and listen, this is what he says. Then Jesus said to the chief priests, the officers of the temple guard and the elders who had come to arrest him, am I leading a rebellion that you have come with swords and clubs? Why didn't you arrest me in the temple? I was there every day. Listen, but this is your moment, the time when the power of darkness reigns. He's saying it's your time, evil. Jesus is allowing darkness to reign, allowing evil to do its worst to him. One of my very favorite authors and theologians is a guy named N.T. Wright. And I think he does the very best job of anyone of explaining the why behind Jesus on the cross. This is a long quote. We're going to read it together, but I think it really illuminates what we're talking about. He says, in the four gospels, the story of Jesus is set in counterpoint with the story of evil, of the snake in the garden, the tottering tower of Babel, the power of Pharaoh killing the babies. Think of Herod in the gospels of rebellious Israel, wicked priests and kings, false prophets, idolatries to the left, right, and center, Jesus goes on his way announcing that this is how God is becoming king. And apparently drawing onto himself as though by a magnet all the evil in the world, from the shrieking demons in the synagogue to the plotting priests in the Sanhedrin and ultimately to the pathetic representative of the ruler of the world. Judas and Pilate merely bring into sharp focus what is going on all along. And evil, sin with a capital S, is gathered together in one place and does its worst. The worst thing imaginable, killing the one true man, the one genuine Israelite, God, the Word, made flesh. The Gospels tell the story of how the power of evil in the world reached its climax. It's like the vortex of evil is coming to one point in order that then it'll do its worst and so be exhausted. Unless we read the Gospels like this, we are falsifying them. As we do when we chop them into tiny snippets and turn them into moral lessons or even, heaven help us, into abstract theological lessons. They are more than that, he says. They are the living story of how God, of how the Lord of life drew the powers of evil onto himself and by dying under their weight, disarmed and disabled them so that from now on they are a defeated rabble. Even though in our dualistic modern spiritualities we still imagine them to have power over us. Isn't that good? He's drawing it to himself so that it can do its worst and he can beat it. On the cross, Jesus not only accomplished the ultimate and everlasting atonement by forgiving our sins and fixing the brokenness caused by them, he dealt a fatal blow to the evil behind the sin by allowing it to do its very worst to him and then dying and then rising from the dead. This is why Paul tells the early church, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And listen, in this way, he has disarmed 
the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly. I love that. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. They came together and they did their worst to Jesus and Jesus beat them. Paul says he beat them so bad that he shamed them publicly. On the cross, Jesus defeated sin and death and evil and all its effects. Through coming down as Jesus, God is doing for humanity what we could not do for ourselves. He is putting on flesh. He's taking up this battle against evil. Adam couldn't do it. Abraham couldn't do it. We needed Jesus. God in the flesh. We have always lost the battle to evil and its effects. Look throughout history. We continue to give in to that offer of power that evil gives. No matter how hard we try on our own, we have and we will continue to lose that fight. So instead, he fights for us. To use a sports metaphor, he comes and he taps us on the shoulder and he subs himself in to the game. He says, I know you can't do this, but y'all, I can. He wins when we couldn't. And by doing so, Jesus makes a way for restored relationship with humanity and he sets us free from ever having to live under the influence of evil again. He sets us free. They are publicly shamed. Like N.T. Wright said, they are a defeated rabble. The atonement is about Jesus saving me and you from our sins. Yeah, but that's only a part of it. It's also about Jesus saving humanity from evil and from its effects. And to circle all the way back to the very beginning, the atonement, the cross, the resurrection is about God being so, so, so good, so merciful and so loving that he is ridding the world of evil and sin without ridding the world of us too. We're going to conclude our time together this morning back where we started. Jesus on the cross, Matthew 27, 45, and 46. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We have often misread and misunderstood this as God the Father turning his back on God the Son because he can't be around sin. But y'all, that's just simply not at all what's happening here. So let me dive into it for us. God is omnipresent. Do y'all know what that means? Everywhere, all the time. Omni is all, present is here. He is everywhere, all the time. And he is fully present and fully divine in Jesus, right? God in the flesh. As he hangs there on the cross, of course God can be around sin. He spent every moment of his time on earth surrounded by sinners, Thieves throw him parties. Prostitutes washed his feet when they said, why are you here? He said, I came to seek and save the lost. That was who he was. How ridiculous is it for us to be like, hey, he can't be around sin. That's all he does. This is, he indwells us by his spirit. I don't know about any of you, but I still struggle. I still have sin and he's around me, thank God. For reasons incomprehensible to me, pastors almost never teach that these words from Jesus on the cross from Matthew 27 are a quote from Psalm 22 
A direct quote. Listen to it. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out to you day by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. Yet, you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. In you, our ancestors put their trust. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you, they cried out and were saved. In you, they trusted and were not put to shame. You see, the Jewish audience that was around Jesus as he was up on that cross watching him die, they would have heard that and they would have immediately thought of Psalm 22. They knew it. They knew their scriptures. They knew the Old Testament. They would have been drawn back to Psalm 22 in their minds and they would have remembered that that psalm is all about hope in the midst of despair. It's all about God coming through as the Savior even when it looks like he's not going to. Isn't that incredible? It doesn't even stop there. Psalm 22, they would have also remembered the way that it ended with a prediction about what Jesus was going to do, what he had gone through, and a promise about the God who saves. This is a messianic psalm. Listen, my enemies surround me like a pack of dogs. An evil gang closes in on me. They have pierced my hands and feet thousands of years before Jesus. I, count, I can count all my bones. My enemies stare at me and gloat. They divide my garments among themselves and throw dice for my clothing. Recognize that? That's what they did to Jesus. Oh, Lord, do not stay far away. You are my strength. Come quickly to my aid. Save me from the sword. Spare my precious life from these dogs. Snatch me from the lion's jaw and from the horns of these wild oxen. I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters. I will praise you among your assembled people. Praise the Lord, all you who fear him. Honor him, all you descendants of Jacob. Show him reverence, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not ignored or belittled the suffering of the needy. He has not turned his back on them, but he has listened to the cry, their cries for help. Our cries for help. When we were needy, when we were losing the battle to evil and sin over and over and over and over again, he has not ignored or belittled the suffering of the needy. He has not turned his back on them. He has heard our cries. I will praise you in the great assembly. I will fulfill my vows in the presence of those who worship you. The poor will eat and be satisfied. All who seek the Lord will praise him. Their hearts will rejoice with everlasting joy. The whole earth will acknowledge the Lord and return to him. All the families of the nations will bow down before him, for royal power belongs to the Lord. He rules all the nations. Let the rich of the earth feast and worship. Bow before him all who are mortal, all whose lives will end as dust. Our children will also serve him. Future generations will hear about the wonders of the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. Declaring to a people yet unborn. Y'all, that is us. That is us. A people yet unborn. The story of Jesus in the Bible is declaring to us and to everyone who has ears to hear that Jesus has done it. He has come and he has overcome. The very last words of Jesus before he dies on the cross echoed this finality. Jesus said, John 19, 30, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. It is finished. Jesus has forgiven us. He has fixed the brokenness caused by our sin and he has defeated all the evil behind it. 
You know what amen means? Amen means I agree and I'm excited about it, okay? Amen, right? That is, it just blows my mind, the depth of his love and power. He comes after us. He comes after you. Not as some monster God who's just perpetually pissed, but this God who loves you, who cares about you. So much that he put on skin and he came and he died. He, he loves you. He loves you. He loves me. He loves that punk 13-year-old kid that got kicked out of his youth group. He loves me sitting up here in all my inadequacies, trying to communicate the depth of his love to you, and he loves you as you sit there and listen to it. He loves us so much and so deeply. But we are still presented with a choice. Just like Adam and Eve, like Cain and Judas and Paul, we can choose to enter into restored relationship with God or not. He, he honors that. He gives us that. He respects our choice. We can choose to turn our backs on the influence of evil or we can continue trying to find power in it. It's like we were in prison and our jail cell has been opened. We're free to go, but we have to walk out. Many choose to stay in the prison cell. Many choose to continue giving in to the influence of evil and chasing after the power that it promises. And that's why we see the atrocities we see in our world today. Just turn on the news, click on Twitter and scroll a little bit. Like it's, it's rough out there a little bit, you know? People continue to buy that lie that evil gives power. And this is why N.T. Wright ended his quote the way he did. He said, the Lord of life drew the powers of evil onto himself and by dying under their weight, disarmed and disabled them so that from now on they are defeated rabble. But listen, even though in our dualistic modern spiritualities, we still imagine them to have power over us. We still imagine that evil and sin have power over us. But y'all, if we have placed our faith and trust in Jesus, they do not. If you're still chasing after that power that evil promises there are really only two possible explanations. Number one, you aren't choosing to live from the victory of Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit within you. You're a Christian. You've placed your faith and your trust in him, but, but you've forgotten. Could be because you've fallen into the trap of believing that something other than Jesus will satisfy you, like money or sex or power. Or it could be because you're trying to do good things, but it's still all in your own power. You've forgotten who you are in Christ and that the power to do good, the power to overcome evil only comes from the Holy Spirit in you, the one who has already won, trusting him. The other explanation is that you've never really trusted your life to Jesus in the first place. You've heard about it, you've thought about it, but you've never truly, really done it, you know? You're living under that false assumption that you can win every battle on your own that you can white-knuckle your way through life. But my friends, we were never, ever, ever meant to live like that. We just can't do this on our own. We can't forgive on our own. We can't make atonement on our own, and we can't fight the influence of evil on our own. We're not strong enough. We're not powerful enough. We weren't built for it. If you fall into either of those categories, don't wait any longer to trust either your life initially to Jesus or just your everyday life to Jesus. 
Make today the day. Like Paul said to the early church, for God says, at just the right time, I heard you. On the day of salvation, I helped you. Paul says, indeed, the right time is now. Today is the day of salvation. If you fall into either of these two groups and are ready to make a change, I would love, I would be honored to talk and to pray with you right after this. I'm gonna just go stand right over in that little banner thing that says prayer. I'm gonna pray, the band's gonna come back up, and I'm gonna be right over there. If you wanna talk, if you wanna pray, I am here. Because I'm telling you, I have encountered and fully embraced the mighty, relentless love and power of God, and it has changed every part of my life. And I want it for you. I want it for you. So let's pray. God, thank you. Oh, thank you for the depth of your love. Thank you for the way that you care for us, the way that you show that to us, the way that you put on skin and you come for us. God, thank you that you stopped at nothing to to make atonement and that you didn't do it the easy way, the quick way out, just by getting rid of all of us, God, but your great love and your great mercy, you did it, God, in just the most sacrificial and beautiful way possible. You came, you loved, you declared a new king and a new kingdom, and then you laid down your life, allowing evil to exhaust its power, paying the debt that we owed for sin and then overcame evil and sin and death with life, and then you offer that life to us. God, I pray that we would accept it. I pray that we would live from it if we've already accepted it. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name.